Out of the Dust, Part 4 January 1935, the President's Ball All across the land, couples are dancing, arm in arm, hand in hand, at the birthday ball. My father puts on his best overalls, I wear my Sunday dress, the one with the white collar, and we walk to town, to the Legion Hall, and join the dance, our feet flying, me and my father, on the wooden floor whirling to Arlie Wanderdale, Wanderdale and the Black Mesa Boys, till 10, when Arlie stands up from his piano to announce we raised $33 for infantile paralysis. A little better than last year, and I remember last year, when Ma was alive and we were crazy excited about the baby coming, and I played at the same party for Franklin D. Roosevelt and Joyce City and Arlie. Tonight, for a little while, in the Bright Hall, folks were almost free. Almost free of dust, almost free of debt, and almost free of fields of withered wheat. Most of the night, I think I smiled, and twice my father laughed, imagine. January 1935. Lunch. No one's going hungry at school today. The government sent canned meat, rice, potatoes. The bakery sent leaves of bread, and Scotty Moore, George Nail, and Willie Harkins brought in milk, fresh creamy milk, straight from their farm farms. Real lunch, and then stomachs full and feeling fine for classes in the afternoon. The little ones drank themselves into white mustaches. They ate and ate, until pushing back from their desks, their stomachs round, they swore they'd never eat again. The older girls, Elizabeth and Lorraine, helped Miss Freeland cook. And Hillary and I, we served and washed, our ears ringing with the sound of satisfied children. February 1935. Guests. In our classroom this morning, we came in to find a family no one knew. They were shy, a little frightened, embarrassed. A man and his wife, pretty far along with a baby coming. A baby coming, two little kids and a grandma. They'd moved into our classroom during the night. An iron bed and some pasteboard boxes, that's all they had. They'd cleaned the room first and arranged it, making a private place for themselves. I'm on the look for a job, the man said. The dust blew so mean last night, I thought to shelter my family here a while. The two little kids turned their big eyes from Miss Freeland back to their father. I can't have my wife I can't have my wife sleeping in the cold truck. Not now, not with the baby coming so soon. Miss Freeland said they could stay as long as they wanted. February 1935, Family School. Every day we bring fixings for soup and put a big pot on it on to simmer. We shared at lunch with our guests, the family of migrants who have moved out from dust and depression and moved into our classroom. We are careful to take only so much to eat, making sure there's enough soup left in the pot for their supper. Some of us bring in toys and clothes for the children. I found a few things of my brothers and brought them to school. Little feed sack nighties, so small, so full of hope. Franklin never wore a one of the nighties Ma made him, except the one we buried him in. The man, Buddy Williams, helps out around the school, fixing windows and doors and the bad spot on the steps, cleaning up the schoolyard, so it never looks so good. The grandma takes care of the children, bringing them out when the dust isn't blowing, letting them chase tumbleweeds across the field behind the school. But when the dust blows, the family sits in their little apartment inside our classroom, studying Miss Freeland's lessons right alongside us. February 1935. Birth. One morning, when I arrive at school, Miss Freeland says to keep the kids out, that the baby is coming and no one can enter the building until the birthing is done. I think about Ma and how that birth went. I keep the kids out and listen behind me, praying for the sound of a baby crying into this world and not the silence my brother brought with him. And then the cry comes, and I have to go away for a little while and just walk off the feelings. 
Miss Freeland rings the bell to call us in, but I'm not ready to come back yet. When I do come, I study how fine that baby girl is, how perfect, and that she is wearing a feed sack nightgown that was my brother's. February 1935. Time to go. They left a couple weeks after the baby came, all of them crammed inside that rusty old truck. I ran half a mile in the dust to catch them. I didn't want to let that baby go. Wait for me, I cried, choking on the cloud that rose behind them. But they didn't hear me. They were heading west, and no one was looking back. February 1935. Something sweet from moonshine. Ashby Derwin and his pal Rush had themselves a fine operation on the Cimarron River, where the water still runs a little. Though the fish are mostly dead, from the dust floating on the surface, Ashby and Rush were cooking up moonshine in their giant metal sill on the bank when Sheriff Robert Robertson caught them. He found jugs of finished whiskey and barrels and barrels of mash. He found two sacks of rye and he found sugar, 1,000 pounds of sugar. The government men took Ashby and Rush off to Enid for breaking the law. But Sheriff Robertson stayed behind, took apart the still, washed away the whiskey and the mash and thought about that sugar. All that sugar, one half ton of sugar. Sheriff decided some should find its way into the mouths of us kids. Bake for them, Miss Freeland said. Bake them cakes and cookies and pies. Cook them custard and cobbler and crisp. Make them candy and taffy and apple pandowdy. Apple pandowdy? These kids, Sheriff Robertson said, ought to have something sweet to wash down their dusty milk. And so we did. February 1935, dreams. Each day after class lets out, each morning before it begins, I sit at the piano, the school piano, and make my hands work in spite of the pain, in spite of the stiffness and scars. I make my hands play piano. I have practiced the best piece over and over till my arms throb, because Thursday night, the Palace Theater is having a contest. Any man, woman, or child who sings, dances, reads, or plays, worth a lick, can climb onto that stage. Just register by 4 p.m. and give them a taste of what you can do. Land you're in. Performing for the crowd, warming up the audience for the Maisel Herd players. I figure if I practice enough, I won't shame myself. And we sure could use extra cash if I won. Three dollar first prize, two dollar second, one dollar third. But I don't know if I could win anything, not anymore. It's the playing I want most, the proving I can still do it. Without Arlie making any excuses. I have a hunger for more than food. I have a hunger bigger than Joy City. I want tongues to tie and eyes to shine at me, like they do at Mad Dog Craddock. Of course they never will, not with my hands all scarred up, looking like the earth itself, all parched and rough and cracking. But if R played right enough, maybe they would see past my hands, maybe they could feel at ease with me again, and maybe then I could feel at ease with myself. February 1935. The competition. I suppose everyone in Joy City and beyond, all the way to Felt and Keys, and even Gaiman, came to watch the talent show at the Palace Thursday night backstage. We were 17 amateur acts, our wild hearts pounding, our lips sticking to our teeth, our urge to empty ourselves top and bottom made a sorry sight in front of the famous Hazel Herd players, but they were kind to us, helped us with our makeup and our hair, showed us where to stand, how to bow, and the quickest route to the toilet. The audience hummed on the other side of the closed curtain. Ivy Herford kept peeking out and giving reports of who was there, and how she never saw so many seats filled in the palace, and that she didn't think they could squeeze a rattlesnake into the back. Even if he paid full price, the place was so packed. My father told me he'd come once chores were done. I guess he did. The Grover boys let us off. They worked a charm. Baby on the sax, Jake on the banjo, and Ben on the clarinet. 
the Baker family following, playing just like they do at home every night after dinner. They didn't look nervous at all. The tap dancers, they rattled their teeth in their jaws and the eyeballs in their skulls. Their feet flying, their arms swinging, their mouths gaping. Then Sunny Lee Hallam tumbled and leapt onto the stage, the sweat flying off her, spotting the palace floor. Marsh Wharton struggled out, his accordion leading the way. George and Agnes Harkins ran their fingers over the strings of their harps, harps, made you want to look up to the heavens for angels, but only scenery and lights and ropes and sandbags hung overhead. And then there was me on piano. I went on somewhere near the backside of middle, getting more and more jittery with each act, till my time came. I played Bye Bye Blackbird my own way, messing with a tempo, and the first part sounded like I used just my elbows, but the middle sounded good, and the end? I forgot I was even playing in front of the packed palace theater. I dropped right inside the music and didn't feel anything till after, when the clapping started, and that's when I noticed my hands hurting straight up to my shoulders. But the applause made me forget the pain. The audience roared when I finished. They came to their feet, and I got third prize, one dollar, while Mad, Mad Dog Craddock singing one second, and Ben Grover and his crazy clarinet took first. The tap dancers pouted into their mirrors, peeling off their makeup and their smiles. Bertie Jasper claimed it was all my fault she didn't win, that the judges were just being nice to a cripple. But the Harp and Harkins were kind, and the Hazel Herd players wrapped their long arms around me and said I was swell, and in the sweaty, dim chaos backstage, I ignored the pain running up and down my arms. I felt like I was part of something grand. But they had to give my ribbon and my dollar to my father, because I couldn't hold anything in my hands. February 1935, The Piano Player. Arlie says, We're doing a show at the school in a week, Billy Joe. Come play with us. I asked my father if he'd say yes. It's okay with him if I want to play. He didn't even know I was at the piano again until the other night. He's making some kind of effort to get on better with me now, since I did him proud at the palace. But I say, No, it's too soon after the contest. It still hurts too much. Arlie doesn't understand. Just practice more, he says. You'll get it back. You can naple with us again this summer, if you'd like. I don't say, it hurts like the parched earth with each note. I don't say, one chord, and my hands scream with pain for days. I don't show him the swelling or my tears. I tell him, I'll try. At home, I sit at Ma's piano. I don't touch the keys, I don't know why. I play stormy weather in my mind, following the phrases in my imagination, saving strength so that when I sit down at the piano that is not Ma's, when everyone crowds into the school for Arlie's show, no one can say that Billy Joe Kelby plays like a cripple. March 1935. No good. I did play like a cripple at Arlie's show. Not that Arlie would ever say it, but my hands are no good anymore. My playing's no good. Arlie understands, I think. He won't ask again. March 1935. Snow. Had to check yesterday morning to make sure that was snow on the ground and not dust. But you can't make a dust ball pack together and slam against the side of the barn and echo across the field, so I know it was snow. March 1935, night school. My father thought maybe he ought to go out to night school, so if the farm failed, there would be prospects to fall back on. He's starting to sound like Ma. The farm won't fail, I tell him, long as we get some good rain. I'm starting to sound like him. It's mostly ladies in those classes, he says. They take bookkeeping and civics and something called business English. I can't imagine him taking any of those things, but maybe he doesn't care so much about the classes. Maybe he's thinking more about the company of ladies. I'll bet none of the ladies mind spending time with my father. He's still good at, he's still good looking with his strong back and his blonde, blondy red hair and his high cheeks rugged with the wind. 
I shouldn't mind either. It's dinner I don't have to come up with. Because the ladies bring chicken and biscuits for him, I'm glad to get out of cooking. Sometimes with my hands it's hard to keep the fire, wash the pans, hold the knife, and spread the butter. But I do mind spending time with all those biddies. I turn my back on him as he goes. I turn my back on him as he goes and settle myself in the parlor and touch Ma's piano. My fingers leave sighs in the dust. March 1935, dust pneumonia. Two Fridays ago, Pete Guyman drove in with a truck full of produce. He joked with Calb Hardy, Hardly, Mr. Hardly's son, while they unloaded eggs and cream down at the store. Pete Guyman teased Calb Hardy about the Wildcats losing to Hooker. Calb Hardly teased Pete Gunyon about his wheezy truck sucking in dust. Last Friday, Pete Guyman took ill with dust pneumonia. Nobody knew how to keep that produce truck on the road. It sat filled with turkeys and heavy hens waiting for delivery. It sat out in front of Pete's drafty shack and sits there still, the cream curdling, the apples going soft because a couple of hours ago, Pete Guyman died. Mr. Hardley was already on the phone to a new produce supplier before evening. He had people in his store and no food to sell them. His boy, Caleb, slammed the basketball against the side of his house until Caleb's ma yelled for him to quit. And late that night, a truck rattled up to the store with colored springs, dozens of hens, filthy eggs, a driver with no interest whatsoever in young Calb Hardly or his precious wildcats. <laughs>